All right, well, good morning. Um, it's good to be able to be here and worship with you guys this morning. My name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East and just want to welcome you if you are new. We are glad that you are with us. As a church, we have spent the last couple of months walking through the Gospel of Mark. And so um, this morning, we're going to spend our time in, in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Mark chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible and you would like somebody to pass you one, you can just raise your hand. Um, Craig is in the back. He's got Bibles. Um, he'll bring one to you. So Mark chapter 14. This morning, we're going to look specifically at um, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. And the title of this message is simply Extravagance. Extravagance. So Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. I'll read for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive in. It was now two days before the Passover feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before and before the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you um, for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that as we examine these words, your words, Lord, I pray that you would use them to be an encouragement to your people, Father. I pray that the response would be that we would step out of this place and, and uh, in our affection for you, our love for you would be stirred. I mean, much like this woman gave her all, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability, the strength to do the same in return. Lord, I think of how much you have poured out for us, how much you have given to us, Lord. Lord, and we are grateful. We are grateful for the opportunity just to even meet in this place and to worship you. And just as we come now and approach these words, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us in all truth. We ask these scenes in your holy and precious name. Amen. I don't did you guys have a good St. Patty's Day? Anybody notice that happened yesterday? Okay. Um, kind of a funny thing happened at our house. I thought, well, I thought St. Patty's Day was Friday. Okay, and so we were just kind of joking about this last night. We prepared, you know, corned beef, cabbage, any good Irishman would do. 
and uh, carrots and potatoes and went out and got to the store. And I was kind of surprised on Friday when I got there to buy the corned beef because usually when I buy the corned beef, it's mostly gone because I'm so late, right? So bought it and uh, got home, started preparing it. And it wasn't until I took the corned beef out that my wife said, you do know that St. Patrick's Day is tomorrow, right? It's like, thank you for that. Did not know that. It was like for the first time in my life, I felt like I was, you know, on top of things, right? Um, I love corned beef and cabbage. I love eating that every year. And part of the reason this kind of sounds stupid, part of the reason why I love it is because when I eat it, I kind of feel like a hobbit. I don't know if you guys have the same experience or not, but just that that big dish, you you put it all like in a pot and you, you pull it out and it's like soft and succulent and it's just right there in the middle of the table and there's carrots and there's cabbage and potatoes and corned beef. I feel like a hobbit when I eat it. I enjoy it. Um, I like feeling like a hobbit, you know, at least once a year. You know what I'm saying? Uh, any any uh, hobbit Lord of the Rings fans in the house? Anybody here? Okay. Um, I'm officially going to use my first Lord of the Rings illustration in a sermon. This is like the first one, all right? Yes, it's about time. But if you have watched the Lord of the Rings, if you appreciate that movie, what you'll notice is as you're watching the movie, anytime the movie goes back to the Shire, Hobbiton, where the hobbits live, this kind of tranquil music sets in, and, and, and green, what was dark and gloomy, suddenly the, the images turn to green and life, and vibrancy, and there's music of harps, and they're smoking their pipes. I don't know what's in those pipes, but I'm sure it's wonderful and probably legal, all right? They're smoking their pipes, and they're enjoying festivities. It is a break from the darkness and the chaos of Mordor. That's what the Shire represents. Every time in the movie it breaks to it, it's almost like you can step back and you can, you can breathe. The Shire is like light breaking through the darkness. That's what the Shire represents. And what we see in our text this morning is actually a very similar thing. The first couple of verses open up and, and we are reminded of what Jesus is enduring. Opposition is pushing in against Jesus. There are those who are seeking to, to, to destroy him, to arrest him and to kill him. That's their intent. And then at the end of our story, we are reminded of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' followers, one of his closest friends who would sell him out for money, betray him, right? Stories of darkness, stories of opposition, of, of death, and sandwiched between these stories, we see, much like the Shire, a ray of light. Light breaks through the darkness. And for a moment, we're able can almost see ourselves sitting around the table with Jesus and how beautiful and glorious this moment would have been. Mark uses this sort of sandwiching effect to really draw contrast to how awesome this action, this one single action by a single woman, how beautiful and glorious it truly is. Our setting for the story takes place in Simon the leper's 
home. Now, there are several other stories the Gospels tell in Matthew chapter 26 and in John 12 also recount this. There's a similar story in Luke 7, but it's actually a different story. In the New Testament, this story in Luke chapter 7 takes place with Simon the Pharisee. And in the New Testament, there's 10 different Simons that are named. Josephus tells us of some 20. Simon was a common name. And there's another woman who was a sinful woman who approaches Jesus in a similar fashion. But, but this story is different. This story takes place in the home of Simon the leper. A high probability that this man, Simon, was actually healed by Jesus and sometime in his ministry. And, and so this could really be seen as a Thanksgiving celebration that Simon throws for Jesus. Of course, if he was a leper, nobody would be in his home eating around his table. All right? But he was formerly a leper, and now he has been healed most certainly by Jesus. And what I love about this, this story, just as kind of a side note, is, is notice the wonderful reversal that has happened as Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God. Those who once were seen as inside are now outside, plotting, scheming, betraying. And those who formerly were on the margins, on the fringes, on the outside, now the leper is sitting, women around Jesus at his feet, marveling, at this man. There is a wonderful reversal that happens with the kingdom of God, and we see it on display here in our text this morning. What we also know is that this text, just as kind of a way of setting it up, is, is probably not in verses 1. It says that there was two days before when it talks about the scheming and the plotting of, of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then there's a break. This is not a story that's followed in chronological order. John tells us this actually happened, this event in Simon the leper's home actually happened six days before the feast. But Mark is putting them together, almost flashing back in a, in a moment that was truly remarkable and truly beautiful. What we'll see this morning, kind of just the big idea of this text, is that our worship, when we give ourselves in worship, oftentimes it will be challenged by others, but always it will be cherished by Jesus. Our, when we truly give of ourselves to worship of God, oftentimes the result will be that it will be challenged or criticized by other people, but it will always be true worship, will always be cherished by Jesus. So that's the big idea. What we're going to do as we walk through this story is we will see that this woman's actions, we will see that big idea because her, we'll learn that her actions are, first of all, to her they're worshipful, to others they are wasteful, but to Jesus they are wonderful. So that's where we're going this morning. First off, just let's look at this woman's actions, these worshipful actions. We see her actions in verse 3. We are told in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus has some remarkable things to say about what she does in verse 3. He calls this a truly beautiful thing and says that this action, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is truly a remarkable pronouncement, one that Jesus makes to nobody else in Scripture. Wherever the gospel goes forth, this story, Jesus says, guaranteed will be told in memory of her. What she has done is a beautiful thing. Why such a... This, I mean, to me, honestly, when you first kind of read through it, it seems just like a simple action, a simple act. 
Why does Jesus make such a remarkable pronouncement? You can think of three reasons. What specifically about this action is so worshipful? Three reasons. First of all, is the, the action itself is extravagant in nature. We're told that the woman approaches Jesus with an alabaster flask of pure nard. Now, if you were to think of our perfume, our perfume is, is alcohol-based, not their perfume. This nard would have been more of an oil-based, and it would have been imported from India. This was not something that was around there. This was extremely, extremely expensive, right? We are told later in the text when others raise objections that it cost 300 denarii. If you remember, when we were looking in chapter 12, one denarii was worth a day's wage, one denarii equals a day's wage. So this is a year's, this is a salary. This woman's salary, one year's salary, she is pulling out, pouring out over top of Jesus' head. If you were to just do a quick Google search and figure out, okay, what are the most expensive perfumes that are out there? Some of you may know, right? But even in your, like, top ten list of the best, greatest perfumes, nothing really even exceeds 200. And I think the, the most expensive one I found was 290 bucks. I mean, sure, there's some out there that ain't nobody buying. They're like 5000 I'm sure, right? But we're talking the equivalent of like $30,000 she is pouring out on top of Jesus' head, gone in just a matter of minutes. This is incredibly, incredibly expensive. This is not really perfume that is like fumbling around maybe in her purse. This is an investment. Odds are it's an heirloom that has been passed down from one generation to the next, this is a treasure, a prized possession. This is something you keep safe in your home. John tells us that not only would she pour it on his head, but she would also pour it on his feet. And she would get down and wipe his feet with her hair. This was by all means an act of extravagance, as intense of an expression of love found anywhere in Scripture. Others can't but help but notice this act of worship, and they are quick to judge its extravagant nature. This doesn't make any sense. It's completely unnecessary, totally over the top. Think of, as we approach Jesus and worship, do you think anybody looks at your worship and says the same thing? As people criticize her and what she gives to Jesus, unnecessary, way too much, way over the top. Do you think anybody looks at you in your worship of Jesus and come to the same conclusion? What a great challenge for us to seek and worship as we give and serve Jesus. Do we know what it's like to approach him in extravagance, lavish display of love over the top? She worshipped him in extravagance. We also know that her act was actually embarrassing. It was extravagant. It was also embarrassing. As she smashes the jar, you could almost see the heads at the party turn. They hear the flask breaking, and, and all of a sudden, all the attention is on her in this action. If I was sitting next to her, I would probably scoot away. You probably would too. This was embarrassing, what she was doing. You didn't want to be associated with it. You didn't want to be associated with it. That, you know, there are certain rules and customs that we abide by when we step into somebody's home. Just like in our culture today, same thing back then. There is a certain convention, a way that you behave 
right? You know, I think of as a father talking to my kids, okay, we're going over to this person's house, we're going to have a meal. Don't, rem- don't forget, please and thank you, use your silverware. Don't be sticking cupcakes in your pockets on the way out. I mean, not my kids, maybe yours, but not mine. They wouldn't do that. But you know what I mean? There is a certain way that is appropriate to behave when you're in somebody's home. This goes completely against what would have been convention. Complete disregard for the rules. This was a disturbance. People scooting away. They didn't want to be associated. This was embarrassing. Her act of worship probably was embarrassing. Okay? And she wasn't concerned with what other people were thinking and judging her by her actions. We also learned that her, action of her act of worship was an emptying. It was extravagant, it was embarrassing, and it was an emptying. Mark makes note that she broke the flask, and this would have been completely unnecessary. You know, on Wednesday, our family went to the Field Museum, just a quick day trip into Chicago, the one thing we did for spring break that was, you know, kind of different. And we went to the Field Museum, and there, one of the, my favorite, was kind of the quickest one, it was towards the end of our kind of journey through, and so everybody was like tapping out, falling asleep on benches, it was getting pretty ugly there for a while. And we get to the Mediterranean exhibit, and in the Mediterranean exhibit, it was quite interesting because there was just a number of alabaster flasks that were there on display, much like what we would have, what this woman would have used in her act of worship. And what was interesting about these flasks is that they were all really beautiful, kind of small, very shiny, r- really nice pieces of pottery. None of them had any handles. One thing they all had in common was every one of them had, this may not come as a shock, a lid. Every one of them had a lid, and the lid was sitting next to the flask. The flask was fully intact, and there was a lid sitting next to the flask. See, the normal way to to anoint somebody would have been simply to get the perfume out, would have simply been to to remove the lid, right? Exactly the same way the the perfume, the the nard was put in the jar, just take the lid off and, and slowly pour it over somebody's head. That would have been what would have been normal, but that's not what she did. She broke the flask. She she broke it. Almost as if to say, there is no going back from here. You could imagine if she had twisted the lid off and and slowly started to pour it over Jesus' head, that that people would have been able to say, whoa, 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 time out. Let's let's think about what you're doing. That's expensive. This is unnecessary. Slow down, right? And maybe she might have been tempted to be, oh, you're right, my bad. Put the lid back on. You're right. You're right. But, but she knew exactly what she was doing. And there was no stopping her. She was completely emptying herself out for Jesus. And, and this morning, I just, simple question is, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Just a strange question, if you were to examine your life, is there anything in your life that if Jesus were to point to and say, I want that, that would be hard for you to let go of? Could it be money? Like maybe for this woman, something that symbolized wealth? Maybe relationships? Maybe a reputation? What is Jesus worth to you? In fact, this emptying of ourselves is is in response. What she was doing, she was emptying herself because she was filled 
by the love of Jesus. It was the love that filled her that then compelled her to pour herself out. The only reason she was able to do this, the only reason she was able to snap the neck, pour it out, no turning back, was because she had been filled by the love of Jesus. Like, you are not going to go this far if you yourself are not full of the love of Christ. It is not until you have come to that point that this, you will see it as even a possibility. Pouring yourself out, giving yourself every last drop to Jesus. We learn in verse 24 in this chapter, as Jesus, in his final meal with his disciples at the Last Supper, he hands them the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This woman is moved by extravagant love. Why? Because Jesus pours himself out for us. That's the only reason anybody would do what she's doing. Because he first poured himself. He empties himself for you. That's why she's doing it. This woman has been transformed by the blood of Christ, by the love of Jesus. Is this how you worship? Extravagant, embarrassing, emptying? Or is your worship, worship in any way restrained? Maybe instead of extravagance, you worship in moderation. Maybe rather than being over the top, your worship can be made sense of, sensible, right? Common sense. Maybe out of fear for others and you don't want to put yourself out there, your worship is kind of held back. Instead of breaking the jar, it's just kind of a little bit under control, right? Is that how you worship? I think a great challenge for us just here at Parkview East is you know, when we walk through these doors on a Sunday morning, we, when we just prepare to meet as a people, I want to challenge you to expect to encounter God. When you walk in this room on a Sunday morning, your heart should be in such a place that you walk through these doors expecting to encounter the living God. When we gather as a people, that is what we are hoping for. That, that the spirit of God would fill this place. And that the result would be extravagant, embarrassing, emptying of ourselves in worship of the man who poured himself out for you. Right? I, I can think, you know, the first time I really experienced worship that was different, and, and I would even just say experienced worship, was when I was in college at 24-7. You know, people had their hands in the air, and I didn't grow up in a church like that, right? And I didn't really, I mean, there was true worship happening in the church that I grew up. When I would go back there, I would hear the singing and, and hear the words and, and see the hearts, and I, I know it was true worship, right? But it wasn't that I really experienced it until I was in a college Ministry, And I, I saw people like my age singing because of the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And, and they were singing in such a way, it didn't matter if they were on key. It didn't matter if they were tone deaf or not. If they knew the words or didn't. It didn't matter 
who was standing next to them. And I can remember walking into that room, and, and this is, I hate saying this, but my first inclination was much like the opposition that she met this day in the room, was judging. What's the motivation there? That was my first inclination. Rather than to just step into the presence of God, be overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, and give to God myself. On a Sunday morning, that's what we want to have happen here. Okay? And for some of us, culturally, this will be a challenge. I'll just be honest. For some of you, maybe, depending on where you come from, culturally, that may be difficult for you. Right? But we are reminded this morning that, that when we give ourselves to Jesus in worship, he cherishes. He cherishes it. He doesn't criticize it. He doesn't challenge it. He cherishes it. Next point. That was the longest one, just so you know. To the others, the woman's actions were wasteful. They were a waste. Though the woman's actions were truly worshipped, others saw what she did as a waste. Her actions quickly drew criticism. Mark simply tells us that some were disturbed by the scene. Matthew tells us in his account more specifically that it was the disciples who challenged the woman. The followers of Jesus saw these actions and they were the, they were the ones to jump on it. This is not okay. This is over the top. It's too much. Calm down. It ain't that big a deal, right? And then in John's account, he tells us actually Judas was the one who was stirring the pot. The money counter was the first one to start stirring the pot. We're told that they grew indignant. They were resentful. They were irritated. They were angry. This woman's actions were over the top, out of place, completely unnecessary. Two reasons it tells us. First is the indignation was rooted at the cost of the contents of the jar. We talked about that. This is not an ordinary bottle of perfume. It's expensive. Now, these are not perfume enthusiasts or aficionados. Okay, don't be mistaken. They didn't see this as offensive because it was perfume, but because of what it represented. This was her investment. This was her everything. And if Jesus is okay receiving her all, what would it require from them? If this was a glorious, beautiful, wonderful act, what would it mean for them? That's where the criticism is coming from. What is this going to mean for them? What might it require them to empty out for Jesus? The second reason for the objection is, is one that, you know, they, they've just kind of used some common sense. Look what else this money could be used for. Namely, the poor. It's a tough one to argue with, right? Think of the many ways that this money could have been used. This is Passover time. The city is no doubt busting with people. There is no shortage of poor and hungry. There are sick. This money could be used in so many more constructive and helpful ways. Practically speaking, this was a waste. This act of extravagance was completely misplaced. What a waste. That's how the disciples saw her actions. They were wasteful. But to Jesus, her actions were wonderful. They were wonderful. Jesus interrupts their scolding of the woman and demands, verse 6, you see it, leave her alone. 
quickly comes to her defense, corrects the disciples by proclaiming that actually what she did was not wasteful. It was beautiful. See, what made this woman's woman's actions beautiful was not the measure of the gift. It, It wasn't the expense of the gift, how much it measured. We know this because in chapter 12, 42 through 44, Jesus commended a poor woman who gave a small measure, a small amount at the temple above those who gave a large amount. Why? Because she gave it out of her poverty. It wasn't the measure that Jesus commended her for. It was the motivation. It was what lied behind the gift. Behind this act of worship was a heart that was so caught up in the person and the work of Jesus that all rationality, all sensibility, all practicality had simply escaped her. John Calvin says that she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that ensure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. She didn't yield that day to common sense or to a busy schedule. She yielded in her worship to the Holy Spirit. Just then, Jesus turns his attention to the critic's objection. What about the poor, Jesus? We know that you have loved the poor, and clearly this is a mandate throughout Scripture. Jesus compels us and commands us to care for the poor among us. When he inaugurated his ministry, his, his first sermon, Luke 4, 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Jesus shows throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he has a special affection and affinity for the poor. In fact, he says, when you care for the poor, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you visit the prisoner, you're actually doing that to me. So this is not Jesus relieving Christians of their responsibility to care for the poor. It's nothing like that at all. In fact, it's the complete opposite. If anything, he is affirming our obligation to care for the poor, to feed the hungry. It says in verse 7, For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. And there's another prophecy that's true. There are always going to be poor among us. Always. Throughout history, always there will be poor. And when we come across poor, an opportunity, we should see it to serve them to love poor, to care for the poor. Jesus does not relieve us of that obligation. Do good to the poor. They will always be among us. That is true. But you will not always have me, he says. Jesus will not always be with us. In fact, in just a a few days, in just a, a week's time, Jesus' lifeless body would be hanging on a tree. He, he won't be there with them. This woman used what she had, and she gave it to God. Total disregard for how expensive it was, how foolish it was. She gave it in worship to Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, 37 and 38, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is exactly what she is doing. She is expressing the greatest commandment. She is acting it out. Before Jesus. Then Jesus makes this amazing pronouncement, so incredibly unique that throughout his life he didn't make it to anybody else. Wherever this is, my story is told, this story will be told in memory of her. 
What a wonderful response. Truly amazing. I mean, today, if you think about it, we are actually fulfilling this prophecy of Jesus. It's not too often that you can say you come to church on a Sunday and you are part of a prophecy being fulfilled. But today, you are. We are telling her story this morning. Generation after generation, inspiring saints to follow with extravagant love and devotion to Jesus. Why would Jesus, why would Jesus make such a proclamation to her? Why would he say this? You know, when I was in high school, I was really sick. And there was weeks at a time where I'd be in the hospital. I had some, some issues. And I can remember one of those weeks I was there. And I was really, really sick at this point. I was there for a whole week. And I can remember laying in bed, and my grandma and her sister came in in the hospital room to visit. And it, it was, a, I mean, you would think it was, okay, that's normal. That should happen. Your grandma loves you, and she, she was there. But, but for me, it, it's a memory that really is burned into my mind, right? Because I, I didn't have the greatest, like, she was a wonderful woman. We didn't have the greatest relationship or the most significant relationship. There was a ton of us, and, and there wasn't a lot of, like, one-on-one -on -one time with this particular grandma. And so I was just really blown away that she, she came into the hospital. And, and what, what's kind of seared in my memory is that as she was, like, you know, is our family's big, okay? And so she had to break it down for my great aunt, like, who I was, you know what I mean? And, like, okay, this is Doug's. This is little Dougie. My dad's Doug, big Doug. I'm little Dougie, okay? And this is, this is him. He said, oh, yeah. And you could just see, like, as she talked about me and who I was, like, I could see pride in her. And it was truly, truly wonderful. And it was something that I will never forget. It was an awesome, awesome act. And I think part of the reason why it stands out in my memory is because that week, and really that year for me, was filled with darkness. It was filled with pain. It was filled with suffering, like physical suffering. That week specifically was really, really difficult, right? And that one moment, that one moment, five, ten minutes, with my grandma and my great aunt, it was like a ray of light that broke through the darkness. And I will never forget it. And I think, can't help but wonder, if that's why Jesus, if that isn't why he makes this proclamation. For him, this week is a difficult week. The opposition is coming against him like it never has before. Men want to kill him. Right? We know that in just a few days he will be in the garden. He will be crying out to the Father. To, if there's any way to take this cup from me, take it. What, what he is going to endure is what like nobody else has ever endured throughout history. And he's walking towards it. It is dark. And in this moment, the clouds break and light shines through. This is what she did for him. But this morning, we are reminded, ultimately, that that is what he does for you. In John chapter 1, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, the truth is, folks, to live is to struggle. 
Nobody guaranteed life is going to be easy. And some of you know that all too well. To live life one day after another, I hate to be a downer, but it is to struggle. There are challenges that are completely outside of our control. And in the midst of that darkness, the wonderful story about Jesus is that he is a light. And he is a light like no other light. That as the darkness begins to push in against you, Jesus gives us a light that cannot be overcome by the darkness. It threatens to push against you. And do you know what Jesus does? He pushes back against the darkness. This is the wonderful story of the gospel. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus. That's why she made such a big deal about Jesus. He is worth everything that you have. He is a light that no darkness can take away from you. It shines in the darkness. In him is life, true life. And I don't think you have any chance of, of really approaching God in extravagant, embarrassing, emptying worship if you have not seen that light, if you do not have that life. And so as we seek to be a people who worships God, and not just for an hour on a Sunday morning, but throughout all of our life, it comes down to that. Have you been filled by the love? If you want to pour yourself out to him in worship, you first have to be filled by him and his love. Have you done that? And if you have not, I would love to talk to you about what that looks like. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, we thank you um, just as we consider this story, Lord, and how truly remarkable it is that this woman gave to you what was most valuable to her. In an act of love and devotion and worship, Father, and um, we know that the only reason why she was able to do it was because she first knew your love. And, uh, Father, I just pray now that you would help us to be a people who know your love well, who have true, experiential, intimate knowledge of how much you care for us. Even when life may be difficult, when maybe the pain won't go away, or maybe loneliness sets in, Father, um, we are reminded this morning that you are the light of the world, a light that cannot be overcome by darkness, Lord, and that's our hope as a people. Father, and because of that, we, we give you our everything. Lord, you are trusted to be trusted with it. We thank you that you will cherish what we have, Father. Lord, and just even now, Father, we, we, we just give ourselves to you and worship. We ask these things in your name. Amen.